Welcome, I am your host and historian, Ali A. Alumi. Glad you could join me this evening, afternoon, whatever time it is, wherever you are. Um, if you are a new listener, uh, I'm glad that you're subscribing. Uh, if you're not a new listener, welcome back. Be sure to follow along using uh, social media. I know, social media and Ali, who knew that the two could mix together? You can do so by going on Instagram or Twitter and following me at A-A-O-L-O-M-I or using the hashtag HeadOnHistory. I do check that out quite regularly. Also, please feel free to leave uh, feedback and review on iTunes. It's a good way to get this podcast out there and on people's radars, and I would greatly appreciate it. After all, I do this all for you. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get into our story. So last week, we talked about the final throes of civil war and fitna in the Muslim community, and really how the Sunni and the Shia both evolve out of trying to explain theologically their historical experience, and that is specifically the historical experience of the rise of the Umayyads. So we discussed how the Umayyads, a dynasty that uh, is connected to Uthman, eventually comes to power. It's the first dynastic Muslim caliphate. And that's where we're going to start off today. So the Umayyads uh, were an Arab aristocracy. They lasted from 661 to 750 CE. And they were very different from the Rashidun Caliphates, that is the first four caliphs that followed Muhammad. They were um, much more in line with their Byzantine predecessor and indeed had moved the capital from Medina to Damascus. They adopted a lot of the sort of Greek Mediterranean lifestyles, and they kept themselves quite separate from the population, living living mostly in garrison towns. Um, they did continue the tolerance of the Rashidun Caliphates. Uh, for example, we know that the Umayyads' great navy was mostly manned by Arab Christians, um, but there was a lot of differences from the previous Caliphate. First and foremost, they were more interested in administration than they were anything particularly religious. Now, it would be inaccurate to view the Umayyads as secular, though some historians have used that word. It's an anachronistic term and concept for the time period. Religion and politics aren't separate. They're kind of the same thing. Uh, they're part of the same sphere. There isn't this idea of personal faith versus governance. Both of these go hand to hand. But the Umayyads were not particularly interested in enforcing a lot of things. Mostly they were interested in enforcing or maintaining some form of social hierarchy. And that social hierarchy was that the Arab aristocrats or elites were at the top and everyone else was at the bottom. And so if you were a Persian or Kurdish convert to Islam, you were not able to participate in the various levels of power. You were not uh, an officer. You didn't hold any position. So even though you were Muslim and probably paid less tax because you weren't giving the jizya tax, but you were giving the zakat tax, you still weren't part of the Umayyad Caliphate. If you were a non-Muslim, Christian or Jew or Zoroastrian, you could practice your religion. You paid a tax in order to receive the protection of the Umayyads, but you, more often than not, weren't part of the various levers of power. In fact, one of the great mosques in Damascus, known as the Mosque of Damascus, uh, or the Grand Mosque of Damascus, was actually originally a church. And so Muslims and and 
uh, Christians did pray in overlapping ways. And Muslims often took previous sacred sites, uh, places that already had meaning to the previous religions, and added their own Muslim uh, layer to it. Yet, at the social level, there was a difference. And we find that, in particular, that though there was no emphasis on conversion, mostly because of uh, the desire not to lose the jizya tax, that there was an Arabization that happens. Arabic becomes the official language of the Umayyad dynasty, and though they originally start off using Byzantine coins, they eventually transition into using coins with Arabic written on them. And we see that Arab culture and Arab customs becomes the primary means by which the Umayyads distinguish themselves from others. So though they are Muslim, they are more interested in things like Arabs are allowed to wear turbans and non-Arabs are not. Arabs are allowed to wear certain clothing and non-Arabs are not. And this is actually where we get to see the hijab first form. I talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to revisit it just to refresh people's memories. The hijab, which is today often seen as a sort of mandatory uh, Muslim practice, a visible practice by female Muslims in particular, uh, is sometimes, especially in Western discourse, seen as a sort of act of oppression by male patriarchal standards placed on females. Um, For others, it's an act of piety. But in its historical origin, it actually is more to do about social hierarchy than it is actually about religion. What we see is that in order to maintain the elite or aristocratic status of women uh, in Umayyad society, they would wear some type of head covering. This mirrors the practices that we see in uh, the Byzantine world, specifically the sort of Eastern Christian practices known as discipulu veili, that is the discipline of the veil. Um, as well as some Sasanian practices. It has more to do with Arab culture than it does with actually Muslim society. It's much later that we start to see the hijab take on a religious dimension. And this is the same with the split between the Sunni and Shia. Both of the splits becomes much more a social-political orientation that then takes on religious qualities. The one main development that's really important to understand during the Umayyads, in addition to the Arabization, both in customs and clothing and language, is the the religious developments that happen under them. The Umayyads are not interested in discussions of theology or religion in any way, shape, or form, and so the state really isn't dealing with it. But it does happen at the local level. What eventually becomes the Sunni and the Shia positions are really a turn inwards after the crises and the civil war that people faced. And so we have people turning towards theological understandings of their historical experience. For the Shia, as we mentioned, it was about reaching proximity to Muhammad through his lineage, that is, someone from his from the Aliyad lineage, uh, being the person who carries on the prophetic message. And for Sunnis, it was about emulating Muhammad. And so what we see is there's a man named, named Abu Hanifa. And Abu Hanifa starts to really be the originator of what we call Sharia. Sharia isn't Islamic law. It's actually a set of guidelines or guidances. And it develops as a rejection of Umayyad elite culture. In many ways, you could argue that it's counterculture, that it's a rejection of the elitism 
that we see in Umayyad culture and a turn towards something simpler and more pure. And Sharia develops after or through an attempt to collect the sayings and the actions of Muhammad in what's called the Sunnah. And this is first done by Abu Hanifa, but this is really in its primitive stage. The idea being that we collect a series of sayings, a series of Muhammad's actions, what he did, and then try to emulate them. But it isn't until the Abbasids that there is an attempt to systematize this. So who are the Abbasids? The Abbasids are the people that eventually take over from the Umayyads. Um, in 750 the Abbasids eventually overthrow the Umayyads. They take over and they establish themselves as the kind of third major caliphate of the Muslim world. But this starts as a revolt, first and foremost. And the Abbasids are kind of a really interesting group of people. In order to understand them, you have to understand how they came to be. First, they start off by playing on the discontent that is really widespread in Umayyad society. The Shiite groups, or the Aliyids, the party of Ali, still was deeply resentful of the experience of the Battle of Karbala. It was a tragedy and a horrific event that left a serious trauma. And so they never fully accepted the Umayyads. And there was Shiite resentment towards the Umayyads and discontent. And that discontent was regular suppressed violently. Then you had those people who had converted to Islam but who were not Arab and so they couldn't participate in the Arab aristocracy. More often than not they were of Persian descent and they're going, wait a minute, dudes and dudettes, we've converted to Islam. Why can't we hold offices of power? Well, you're not an Arab. And so they were discontent. Then you have the group of people who were eventually going to be called the Sunni, right? The people who accepted the first four caliphs and who were interested in following the Sunnah of Muhammad. That is the example of Muhammad. Well, these people were discontent because the Umayyads had created this aristocratic culture that broke with the egalitarian and simple message of Islam. And then you had the non-Muslims, who were also excluded. While they were allowed to practice their religion, they were excluded from the halls of power. And the Abbasids very cleverly, over a series of decades, cultivated this discontent vis-a-vis -vis propaganda and slow build-up. What they did is they created a coalition, an alliance between all these groups. And they said, look, look at those Umayyads. They're living like kings. They're not living in the Muslim lifestyle. Look at them. They're denying the lineage of Muhammad. We should establish someone from the Banu Hashim, which is the uh, tribe of Muhammad. We should establish one of those people. And so in that way, they curried favor with the Shia. They appealed to the various ethnic groups by saying, look, Islam is about creating an egalitarian society, and clearly the Umayyads with their aristocracy are, are violating that. And so they were really good at, at appealing to everyone based on what that group really wanted. And their propaganda against the Umayyads was super successful. The key to the Abbasid success comes also from the geography of the Muslim uh, empire at this particular time. There's a region known as Khorasan, and Khorasan 
is kind of the eastern ends of the Persian world and includes uh, what it is today, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, eastern Iran, Afghanistan, and all the way up until what would be considered Pakistan and northern India. And Khorasan is an interesting region. It's mostly autonomous. Even during the Sasanian Empire, the empire that ruled this area before the Muslims, Khorasan was always a troublemaking region. It was hard to maintain lots of mountains uh, distant from the center and heart of the empire itself from its capital and so they relied on stalwart loyal governors but what happens is a lot of those times those governors end up having their own schemes and plots and this kind of happens to the Umayyads so the Umayyads had their own governor over in Khorasan but the Abbasids had a connection. There was a man named Abu Muslim. Abu Muslim was a Persian convert to Islam who had deep connections to the Sasanian Empire uh, through lineage. His family claimed uh, some nobility in the, in the Persian world. And so he was able to appeal to the Persians of the region as well as appeal to Muslims. Khorasan was also different from the rest of the Umayyad um, dynasty or, or, or caliphate in that the Muslims didn't live in separate garrison towns like they did in most of the territories. Rather, in Khorasan, they all lived side by side, and so coalition building was much easier to do in Khorasan. There was a sort of ethnic equality that existed there that Abu Muslim was able to tap into. And Abu Muslim connects with the Abbasids. He finds Abbasid, uh, the Abbasid revolt or the Abbasid propaganda very useful and fruitful. And so they form an alliance. And he becomes one of the major um, figures in the Abbasid revolt. What he does is he leads his troops or the people that he's gathered, the coalition he's formed in Khorasan against the heart of the Umayyad caliphate. At the same time, there is a rebellion going on in the Hejaz, that is, in the Arabian Peninsula. And the Umayyads just can't deal with this. They don't understand how to fight back against this revolt on multiple sides. This brewing resentment and discontent explodes into outright revolution. Abu Muslim uh, took his forces and drove out the Umayyad governor from uh, Khorasan, Ibn Sayyan. Ibn Sayyan was driven out, and then he marched on the caliphate itself. And the forces of the Abbasids and the forces of the Umayyads met in the Battle of Zab in 750. Zab is a, a river in modern-day Iraq. And Marwan II was the caliph of the um, Umayyads, while Asafa and was the leader of the Abbasids, and Abu Muslim was his general. And this was a really interesting battle because what happened is that the Abbasids actually borrowed a tactic that they had seen the Syrians use, and the Syrians were mostly on the side of the Umayyads. And what they had done is on the Battle of Zab, they created a shield, a spear wall. They held out their spears horizontally in an unbroken line. And what this was aimed to do was to break up the Umayyad cavalry. The Umayyads were quite successful in using horse and camelback in order to create an efficient, fast-moving, dynamic 
cavalry. And it was the key to a lot of their successes is that they had developed these tactics, the cavalry as well as a strong naval presence in the Mediterranean. And so the Umayyads drove their cavalry right into the spear wall, but the spear wall didn't break. They hoped that by just sheer force and overwhelming numbers that they would be able to break through the spear wall. But the spear wall held, and it actually broke up of the cavalry. It was a disastrous battle for the Umayyads and was considered the turning point in the revolt, leading to the failure of the Umayyads. So in 750, Marwan lost, Marwan II lost that battle. And As-Safa was proclaimed Khalif. He was the first Khalif of the Abbasid Caliphate. And city, right afterwards, city after city was taken. And the Umayyads were forced to retreat further and further and further until they were finally driven out of the uh, Levant and into North Africa and from North Africa to the Iberian Peninsula where they established their own uh, caliphate separate from the Abbasids. So we have the grandson of Hisham ibn Abdul Malik, known as Abdul Rahman the First. He is, survives this kind of onslaught by the Abbasids, and he establishes his own kind of kingdom, what's known as an emirate, an Umayyad emirate in Al-Andalus, that is Moorish and Berber uh, Iberia, the Iberian Peninsula. It later on becomes the emirate of Cordoba, and it uh, lasts for several hundred years, and it does its own thing over there in the Iberian Peninsula, while the Abbasids established a new caliphate known as the Abbasid Caliphate. All right, now let's take a quick break and do a rapid-fire round. So, here are some questions. Uh, Sharia isn't law? I thought it was Sharia was Islamic law. Were the Abbasids Persian, not Arab? What's your favorite food, and why are they called the Abbasids? All right, so little Timmy asked a very interesting question. Little Timmy's like, I thought Sharia was Islamic law. Well, little Timmy, let me tell you and set the record straight. It's, people call it Islamic law mostly because they understand it vis-a-vis Judeo-Christian lens, in which there is canonical law and halakha, which is Jewish law or uh, rabbinic law specifically. Uh, Sharia is nowadays interpreted as law, but in reality it isn't a legal, and indeed there are certain legal components to it. There's jurisprudence. But Sharia is actually a system of guidance. It's technically non-binding. So for example, you may have heard of the concept of a fatwa. A fatwa is just a declaration. There's nothing binding about a fatwa. It just means a scholar has declared something. Sharia, therefore, is usually local, uh, expressed locally. That is, a community develops around a scholar, asks scholars questions about how to apply Islamic principles in their daily life. And the application of those principles is called fiqh, that is, the understanding of uh, Islamic Sharia. So to think of is Sharia as law is kind of misleading. It also feeds into this whole like, oh, you can't follow the Constitution and Sharia at the same time. Well, the reality is that Sharia is not about state or federal or governmental law in any way, shape, or form. Sharia is about local expressions of religion. It's about how to fast, how to pray five times a day. So like the Quran doesn't mention how prayer should look. It just says you have to pray five times a day. And it's out of Sharia that Muslims know to do the 
prostration and the bending over and the kneeling. That's where they get it from, from Sharia. Um, Sharia tells you how much to pay in zakat. Sharia tells you all sorts of things. And it's basically scholarly interpretation of principles that they find in the Quran. There are components of it that have legal dimensions, and we're going to have a whole episode on Sharia in the second season. So it's just something to be aware of. The Sharia is more complicated than law, and it's much more loosely uh, formed than people think. It's not really a legal system, but rather a sort of guide, series of guidebooks. The Abbasids, were they Persian? Well, no, they weren't. Even though they originally, they certainly cultivated the discontent among the Persian world, Asafa and the early Abbasids were actually Arabs. They were still Arab speakers. They were still people from the descendants from the Arabian Peninsula. However, later on, by the time of Harun al-Rashid, we start to see the Abbasids intermarry with Persian women and half-Persian kids. And so we can argue that they become a very multi-ethnic dynasty. Um, but they are not originally Persians, even though they rely on Persian support. What's my favorite food? That's a toss-up. I'm going to have to say that if I had it my way, I would eat Mediterranean food all the time. Time. But you can't go wrong with Afghan food. Solid Palau, Mantu over Ashak. Those are people who are who are Afghan totally understand what I'm saying. Everyone who's not Afghan, like, what the F are you talking about? There's a big debate in the Afghan community between the types of dumplings that you can have. So Mantu is a meat-filled dumpling, whereas Ashak is a steamed leek dumpling. And both of them have like yogurt sauces and mint and whatnot. But there's a massive debate, probably a bigger debate than the Sunni-Shia divide is over Mantu and Ashak. Why are the Abbasids called the Abbasids? That's a great question, and I don't think I actually covered this. The Abbasids are a Hishamite uh, dynasty. That is, that they claim to be from the same tribe of Muhammad. And in order to cultivate the Shia and the Aliyid position, that is, the people who want someone from Ali's or the, the Ali's lineage, they claim that they are descendants of Abbas, that is, the uncle of Muhammad. So they claim to have a direct familial connection to Muhammad, therefore playing up the idea of lineage. And so that connection to Abbas is why they're called the Abbasids or the Abbasids. All right, that's enough of the rapid-fire round. Hopefully that got our brain stimulating. Let's get back to our topic. So the Abbasid Caliphate. This is considered to be by some historians, the so-called golden age of Islam. But I'm quite hesitant about this idea of a golden age. I think it's misleading. And the Abbasids were, you know, they had their own problems they had to deal with. But it is certainly one of the longer-lasting caliphates. The Umayyads lasted barely 100 years. The Rashidun only lasted a few decades. Um, but the Abbasids last from 750 CE to 1258. Uh, and we'll talk about the end of the Abbasids because it's kind of an interesting decline. But the Abbasids established their authority, and one of the one of the things that they did is while they were consolidating their coalition early on, they were very ambiguous about what it is they wanted because they played all these different angles. Oh yeah, we're we're descendants of Abbas. We want to establish a an Aliyid or pro-Aliyid Hashemite dynasty. We want to be multi-ethnic. Oh yes, we're gonna. Know, reject the monarchical rule of the Umayyads. They, you know, they convinced the pious Muslims, oh, they ruled like kings. And because they were ambiguous, what ended up happening is when the Abbasids finally took power, they ended up betraying a lot of their claims. First and foremost, it did betray the Shia early on. Now, the Abbasids and the Shia have a kind of complicated relationship. There are periods in time where the Abbasids and the Shia Talali, what is developing to become Shiism, have a very strong relationship. And we'll see this with the Buyids, a sort of 
intermezzo dynasty that really becomes its own emirate, but still connected to the caliphate in the 9th and 10th century. So the Shias do prosper under the Abbasids, but there's also periods of great persecutions of the Shia. So they broke their promises uh, to them. They also betray Abu Muslim himself. The second Khalif, um, Al-Mansur, summons Abu Muslim in 755 to the palace and accuses him of heresy and then has him executed. And he does this because Abu Muslim is way too popular to leave alive and he was a threat to their authority. And so we see that the ambiguity of the Abbasids during their propaganda phase leads to them being really kind of betrayers. They also in no way, shape, or form, break with the Umayyad tradition of an aristocracy. Now, what they do is they do create a multi-ethnic dynasty. We have people who are Persians that are now uh, in all levels of power, Christians and Jews. In fact, the very uh, most of the architects of the Abbasid cities were Jews, the most famous being, mashallah, of um, uh, Baghdad. There's also... Uh, Buddhists that raised to various heights in the Abbasid dynasties. One of the the chief uh, families that runs the Abbasid dynasty, the Abbasid Empire for them. They become the major administrators and viceroys. Are the Barkhamids, and the Barkhamids eventually convert to Islam, but they actually start out as a Buddhist family, and the Barkhamids' Buddhist connection um, doesn't hold them back from you know ascending very high. And so the Abbasids, in that regard, they are certainly a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, but at the heart, they are still a monarchy. In fact, they're more monarchical than the Umayyads are. They can continue the Umayyad tradition of a dynastic succession, that is, the opposite family is the ones that are becoming caliphs, but they rule as luxuriant kings, as these kind of opulent rulers. And they set up their center of power in Baghdad. So just as the Umayyads move from Medina to Damascus in order to consolidate their power and break away from the Rashidun, so too do the Abbasids break away from the Umayyads by moving their capital to Baghdad. And they design Baghdad in a hub, a very different design than Damascus's, which is based off of city blocks. And the hub is with the Khalif at the center, around him, the nobles and royals and family members, around them, the elites of society, then the merchants and the artisans and the traders, and then on the outskirts of society, everyone else who's trying to gain access. And so you have this kind of concentric circles, this hub design that really emphasizes the way that the Abbasid Khalifs saw themselves. They saw themselves as divinely appointed rulers and leaders. And in many ways, they adopted a lot of the Sasanian practices. If the Byzantines, if the Byzantines influenced the Umayyads, then the Sasanians influence the Abbasids. And we see this in the fact that some of the Abbasid Khalifs started to adopt the old Sasanian king titles, king of kings, the sword of God on earth, the shadow of God on earth. And so they had all these titles, these these great and, and kind of massive appellations that they atta- attached to themselves that came directly from the Sasanian tradition. They also kept harems. And this is quite interesting, that the harem concept is a predominantly Persian construction. That is, a group of women that are watched over by some form of a eunuch, um, and the eunuch himself having certain political power. That harem, that Sasanian practice, becomes quite big for the Abbasids, who develop their own 
vast harems of women who some of whom become quite powerful and influential but what's interesting about the Abbasids is the effect that they have on Islam whereas Muslims respond and reacted to the Umayyads the Abbasids are much more actively involved in developing an orthodoxy so what the Abbasids do is they systematize the tradition of scholarship. Scholars have existed in the Muslim world from the very beginning, people who had memorized the Quran, those who had memorized and compiled the histories of Muhammad, the sayings of Muhammad, those who were starting to develop Sharia, like, uh, like Abu Hanifa. But what the Abbasids did is they made it official. They courted these people and asked them to participate in debates, asked them to participate and get involved with the state in order to create an orthodoxy. And this group of scholars were known as the ulema, and they had a sort of tense relation with the Abbasids. On one hand, they relied on the Abbasids for their power. On the second hand, they were also the checks against the Abbasids. They were the ones that would call out the excesses of the Abbasid caliphate. This leads to one of the more interesting moments in kind of Islamic intellectual history, and that is the Minya. That is a series of kind of, I guess the best way to describe them would be sort of like the Inquisition, in which the Abbasids try to create an orthodox position for Islam. We're going to talk about the Minya and the uh, theological and philosophical developments of the Abbasids next week, when we also talk about Iberian and Andalusian Islam. But it suffice to say that the Abbasids also had a great impact on the civilization of the Muslim world. And this is why a lot of kind of Orientalist and 19th century reimaginings of this time period call it an Islamic golden age. One of the things that they did is they were deeply influenced by Persian culture. And this is if the Umayyads had a process of Arabizing the uh, caliphate and the Muslim ummah, then the Abbasids had an effect of bringing in Persian influence, that is, they Persianized a lot. While true, they continued to use Arabic as the primary language or the lingua franca, we see that a lot of uh, Persian components make their way into the empire. First, the moving of the capital to Baghdad, it's super close to Ctesiphon, the previous Sasanian capital. Next, what they do is they build a cultural center. So uh, Harun al-Rashid, one of the more famous caliphs during the Golden Age, builds what's known as the Bayt al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom. And in many ways, this uh, replicated uh, the translation and houses and libraries of Gundushapur, which was a, a Persian city. And the Bayt al-Hikmah becomes a major center of intellectual learning. It takes many of the old Persian texts, the Greek texts, and it translates them into Arabic, making the knowledge and philosophy of Aristotle and Plato accessible to the Arabs. And this develops an amazing tr intellectual tradition within the Muslim world. Uh, scientists and scholars and philosophers from around the globe would come to Baghdad to study at the Bayt al-Hikmah to participate in translation programs. The success of this kind of intellectual flourishing and the translation projects was mostly a result of the accessibility of paper. Thanks to its connections through trade with China, paper was made uh, widely available in the Abbasid 
period and the Abbasid Caliphate. And so they were able to translate books on a mass scale. Most of the translators were actually Christians and Jews and Buddhists and Zoroastrians. And, but all of them contributed to the wider what would be called the wider Islamicate culture. And we see evidence of this in the fact that, a, that an average book maker would have in in Baghdad and bookmakers there's a whole street called the street of bookmakers and and uh, bookstores and booksellers that an average store just a local store would have thousands upon thousands of books whereas a monastery in Europe in medieval Europe would have probably 10 and be considered a treasure trove and so this really shows us how the technology shaped the culture vis-a-vis paper. And a result of this was actually a flourishing of scientific thought in particular. So you had people like Ibn Sina who developed medical treaties that influenced the Western world. Modern medicine wouldn't have been possible without people like Ibn Sina um, or uh, Ibn al-Haytham who developed optics that eventually gave rise to lenses and telescopes and glasses, um, who was one of the first to really build a scientific or form a scientific method. The idea of having a, po- and a hypothesis that you would then test out and consensus among the community. The scientific method emerges out of this time period thanks to these Muslims in the Abbasid dynasty. And Ibn al-Haytham's theories along with Ibn Sina's make their way into Europe where they give birth to the Renaissance and eventually the Enlightenment. Then, of course, you have to thank Khwarezmi who gave us algebra that, you know, for those of you suffering through who high school math or who have remembered the trauma that is high school math and taking algebra classes with that one jackass of a teacher. You have the Arabs and Khwarezmi to thank for that particular accomplishment. And all of this was part of this flourishing of culture, technology, science, and intellectual traditions that happened during the Abbasid period. But the Abbasid period was also fraught with religious developments, some of which were deeply rooted in tensions and some of which produced the orthodoxies. The Abbasids gave birth to the madhabas, the various schools of of thought in Islam, to qalam, that is Islamic philosophy, to the ashari and the mutazili theological perspectives. All of that is something that we're going to discuss next week when we look at the religious developments of the Abbasids, the decline of the Abbasids, and the influence of Iberian and African Islam. I'm going to end it here with the so-called golden age of the Abbasids, and we're going to pick up next week, but let's go to some book recommendations. The first book is actually by a guy named S. Frederick Starr. He's a historian, not of the Middle East, but of Central Asia. And he wrote a book called Lost Enlightenment, Central Asia's Golden Age from the Arab Conquest to Tamerlane. It's a really good book to understand the kind of cultural and intellectual developments that happen during the Abbasid period. Now, why Central Asia? That's because a lot of the things that happened in in Islam's Golden Age doesn't happen in what is considered the Arab world, in the Levant, or in the Arabian Peninsula, but actually in the Persianate world that later on is called Central Asia. Central Asia is kind of a weird designation that comes out of the Soviet era. But we see Baghdad, Herat, Bukhara, Samarkand. These are 
in countries like Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Iran, Iraq. These are the cultural centers of the Islamic world in this particular time period. So that's why historians of Central Asia are doing work on it. So definitely check out uh, Frederick Starr's book, Lost Enlightenment. Um, I also recommend uh, the uh, another book by a journalist and a sociologist, Jonathan Lyons' book, The House of Wisdom, How the Arabs Transformed Western Civilization. So he's actually a journalist who does have his doctorate in sociology, but his approach is interesting. It's a very accessible book, and it talks about the House of Wisdom, the Bayt al-Hikmah that we discussed in the podcast, but it talks about the connections with so-called Western civilization and how the Arab, the so-called Arab-Persian um, golden age of the Abbasids in turn had a deep impact on Europe and how it produced what eventually becomes known as the Renaissance and the Enlightenment vis-a-vis the transmission of the knowledge that gets translated, expanded upon, commented vis-a-vis the technology, science, and information that comes out of the golden age. So it's a really good book, House of Wisdom, super accessible, not a particularly complicated historian's approach. The next book that I would recommend is Central Asia and World History by Peter B. Golden. Peter B. Golden is actually a historian of the Turkic world, but this book is really, really important for what I'm going to be talking about this week and next week, and that is the construction of what is known as the Turco-Persian world, which becomes the heart of the Islamic world, a particular culture that brings together Islam with the Turkic and Persian people and produces a particular culture that lasts until the modern era, um, probably one of the dominant cultures alongside Arabic culture. So check out Peter B. Golden's book. These are the three recommendations I would uh, give you. They're great books and pretty easy to follow and fun history textbooks. Hopefully you're enjoying these book recommendations. Let me know what you think of the books. Um, I may be putting up uh, a link to them on on our website, um, but I'll let you know as that develops. Anyways, that is all for now. Thank you for tuning in, and stay smart, beautiful history nerds.